GoFundMe Scammer by Sarah Trelevin. Help save Cindy. I watched as friends and strangers rallied around my dying classmate on Facebook, but it was all a scam. Several years ago, I watched as my old classmate Cynthia Smith was publicly dying on Facebook. Her wise-cracking, self-deprecating tone had suddenly given way to a sombre announcement in 2014 that she had been secretly battling chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, CIDP, a little-known neurological disorder with wide-ranging symptoms, though not typically fatal. Smith had always been a chronic oversharer. She made jokes about her struggles with weight loss and her inability to nail down a boyfriend, and she invited all of her Facebook friends to her upcoming wedding, where she planned to marry a bag of jalapeno and cheddar Doritos. But after the CIDP announcement, she disappeared from her own Facebook feed as close advocates took over and started posting on her behalf. They also added a new group page, Help Save Cindy's Life, to update Smith's friends on the fine details of her failing health. Most people, including me, called her Cindy, not Cynthia. Smith's prognosis quickly worsened and her close friends and family scrambled to raise funds for experimental medications using platforms like Facebook and GoFundMe. According to the GoFundMe campaign, which was launched in November 2014, Smith lost her sight completely, went into organ failure, suffered a massive stroke, and as of recently, the nerves in her brain have been affected, leaving her speech impaired. The fundraising campaign noted that CIDP has no known cure, but there was some hope pegged to a pricey stem cell transplant. In the meantime, the only thing keeping Smith alive was a cocktail of experimental medications that were not covered by the public healthcare system. The GoFundMe account set a goal of Canadian $1.6 million to pay for the treatment, and the cash poured in. It wasn't until months later when the crowdfunding campaign peaked at $126,594 that people in Smith's orbit started to realise something about the story was terribly wrong. Since GoFundMe's founding in 2010, more than 250,000 campaigns have been launched to pay for healthcare costs, a full third of the site's total campaigns, raising over US $650 million in contributions. As far as we know, the vast majority of these campaigns are earnest pleas for help. There have also been a number of high-profile scams. In a 2017 incident, a couple in the US raised $400,000 to ostensibly benefit a generous homeless veteran who had given a woman his last $20 when she ran out of petrol. It turned out that the entire narrative had been concocted by the trio after they met outside a casino, and the scam unravelled when the veteran went public with the truth to complain he'd received only a small portion of the funds. Some scammers have started crowdfunding campaigns in the names of other people's dead children. Others have falsely claimed that their own children are sick or dead. In turn, platforms like GoFundMe have come under increased scrutiny. GoFundMe has introduced a trust and safety team, which includes former members of law enforcement, whose full-time job is to sniff out fraudulent requests and copycat campaigns. The company pledges that all donors will be fully refunded if their donations are misdirected. 
GoFundMe provides potential donors a short list of questions to ask themselves so they can suss out scams. One of the items asks, are direct friends and family making donations and leaving supportive comments? The suggestion is that contributions from friends and family can help demonstrate that a cause is legitimate. But what if friends and family members are being duped too? When Smith got sick, I found myself glued to her Facebook page. Every morning in late 2014 and early 2015, I made coffee and looked for news about her condition. Through Facebook, I learned that Smith's valiant fight with CIDP had actually started three years earlier. Since 2011, she had been suffering largely in silence, her escalating symptoms unknown to those closest to her until the situation suddenly became dire. At over $7,000 a week, Smith's medications were exorbitantly expensive. If this treatment regime could somehow tip Smith into remission, one of Smith's emissaries explained, then she would become a candidate for a stem cell transplant that would save her life. But the cost of the medications was a drop in the bucket compared to the cost of the stem cell transplant, tentatively organised in partnership with a US hospital at a price of $500,000. Smith's supporters were determined and organised. A woman named Hilary Keeves, Smith's best friend of many years, led the fundraising charge. Cindy is truly one of a kind, with a heart that is bigger than this world, she wrote on the GoFundMe campaign. A series of fundraising events were organised, including a bottle drive and a scrap metal drive. The Help Save Cindy's Life page on Facebook even allowed well-wishers to purchase donated goods, like handmade beaded necklaces or a half-hour reflexology session. In periodic YouTube videos, Smith displayed the generous gifts friends donated and the medical equipment she was able to buy. It was in mid-March that Chris, one of Smith's caregivers, took to Facebook to announce that one of Smith's friends, in a spectacularly loving and shocking gesture, had sold his home to help keep Smith alive. The price of the house was never disclosed, but it was, according to Chris, reduced to sell against the advice of his real estate agent. If this kind of generosity didn't motivate others to give until it hurt, what would? Despite all that support, it appeared as if Smith was losing her battle with CIDP. Smith's home nurses, three men named Tom, Chris and Jeff, who never appeared in photos or seemed to have their own social media profiles, took over her Facebook account to update Smith's friends on her condition, alternating desperate pleas for help with small, endearing details of Smith's new normal. Back in December 2014, about a month after the GoFundMe was launched, Nurse Tom posted on Facebook that Smith was rapidly deteriorating and they desperately needed money to keep her alive. We don't know if she will ever be well enough to get her stem cell transplant, but let's give her the best life we can while she's still with us, he wrote. Please, dig deep into your hearts. Instead of that morning coffee, would you consider donating that dollar in Smith's name? I am begging you all. Despite pleas from classmates to help Smith over the course of her crowdfunding campaigns, I held on to my money. Instead of the empathy I was supposed to feel in response to this kind of appeal, I felt a terrible gnawing suspicion. I couldn't shake the feeling that something was off, but I didn't want to be the person calling out a supposedly dying girl on Facebook based on a weird feeling. What if I was wrong? 
Then, in mid-March, a reporter named Nicole O'Reilly started asking questions about Smith's plight. She interviewed Smith's best friend, Hilary Keeves, and her sister, Cheryl Smith, but neither was able to provide key details about her condition. The more I kept asking about what medications she was on, the names of her doctors, they couldn't give me any specifics, says O'Reilly. She killed the story and a fellow reporter contacted the police to suggest that something wasn't quite right. Shortly after, in April 2015, a fundraising garage sale for Smith was suddenly cancelled, sparking general confusion. Her hundreds of supporters were outraged about what it might mean for a woman in need of life-saving medications. But social media details of Smith's well-being were suddenly scarce. I am sure they can't stop you from letting us know if she is even still alive, wrote one friend on her Facebook page. Then, in May, the bottom fell out. A Smith Facebook supporter, who happened to live nearby, posted that she'd seen Smith leaving her apartment. Smith was neither blind nor using a wheelchair. In fact, she was walking on her own, carrying a basket of laundry. A new reality dawned on the group. They'd been ripped off. On May 7, Smith's mother, Kathy Vernon, addressed a barrage of questions, writing in a short Facebook post that an investigation was ongoing and that Smith was fine. That same day, Smith was arrested on one count of fraud over $5,000. A police investigation soon determined that Smith never had CIDP and was never dying. She managed to dupe a couple of unwitting close friends into helping her fool hundreds of people online, they found, and then the internet did most of the work. As part of a plea bargain, Smith ultimately pleaded guilty to a charge of fraud under $5,000 and with no prior record, was sentenced to two years probation, including mandatory counselling. One report indicated that she had no supporters in the courtroom. A publication ban was enforced due to sensitive discussions of Smith's mental health history, which makes it challenging to unpack exactly what happened. It's also unclear how much money Smith actually raised, but the police did seize a storage locker full of donated goods and medical equipment. In the wake of the revelation, a vigorous discussion continued on Smith's Facebook page, with former friends sharing news stories and general disgust. One friend noted that her office had given their Christmas donation to Smith instead of a struggling local family. After months of rallying in support, they all seemed incredulous about having been taken advantage of. Her actions had left a terrible, bitter taste. Smith is far from the only youngish woman to rip off friends and family members on the internet. There's the college girl who faked stomach cancer and had her friends push her wheelchair around to non-existent chemotherapy appointments, the woman who stole over US $260,000 through social media and two GoFundMe accounts, convincing even her young son that she was dying, and the woman dubbed the photogenic queen of cancer fraudsters for lying about breast cancer to raise $12,000 in her small community. Adrienne Gonzalez runs the site GoFraudMe, where she tracks fraudulent GoFundMe campaigns around the world. Gonzalez says that far more women than men orchestrate the fake medical fundraising campaigns she sees. I don't think they wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to scam someone, she says. I think it's more complicated than that. 
and I believe the basis is found in Munchausen by internet, whether it's the need for attention or something else. Munchausen by internet, a term coined by Mark Feldman, a University of Alabama psychiatrist who specialises in factitious disorders, is an adaptation of Munchausen syndrome and describes individuals who feign or exaggerate medical conditions primarily online. They may also create fake sock puppet accounts or alternate personalities, posting as a concerned friend or nurse, for example, to lend the ruse greater credibility. Feldman says this kind of behaviour disproportionately presents in younger women and hypothesises that's because women tend to act out in more socially sanctioned ways. When men act out, they end up in prison, he says. Women end up in doctor's offices. Cancer is the most popular choice of internet fakers, says Feldman, in part because of the language and perspectives we have collectively established. Battling cancer allows a person to adopt a certain heroic stance, he says. In one fraudulent crowdfunding case he studied, a woman shaved her hair and brows, claiming the hair loss was from chemotherapy, and even tattooed the words, won't quit, on her knuckles all of which was, of course, prominently displayed on social media. But sometimes scammers choose something more obscure, he adds, making the deception that much easier. Taryn Harper-Wright, who hunts Munchausen by internet cases, says that the signs of a scam are unique to each case, but there are some general giveaways. When someone is blogging about a legitimate illness, she notes, even in the most extreme cases, there are days of tedium lying on the couch binge-watching Netflix or sitting on the veranda, a weary face turned to the sun. Constant drama is a big red flag, she says. In legitimate illnesses, every day is not this big dramatic roller coaster where you have a bone marrow transplant one day and the next day your cousin dies in a car crash and the next day the dog runs away and the house burns down. With the scammers, every day is sweeps week. Smith's two-year probation sentence didn't seemingly square with the level of hurt and exploitation in which she had participated. On the other hand, it appears that Smith was badly damaged almost from the very beginning. One early fundraising post ran through a lifetime of bad luck, including childhood trauma, being placed in foster care, having a pacemaker implanted at the age of 32 and being hit by a car. It's unclear which, if any, of those things are true but it's easy to imagine that she was much less content than she appeared before she started posting about CIDP. Reading over the posts written by Nurse Tom, who I suspect was an alter ego, I wonder now if Smith was just telling herself the things she needed to hear. I have been a nurse for 10 years now, and I can honestly say that it has been a pleasure and an honour to work with a patient such as herself, wrote Tom. She is my inspiration and why I love coming to work. I am so blessed to call her my friend amongst all of you wonderful people. When I reached out to Smith to tell her that I wanted to write about her, she was initially warm and gracious, but the conversation quickly turned volatile when I made clear that I hoped to interview her on the record. She has since blocked me on social media. And yet, once I learned Smith had been lying, all of the compassion I had been cautiously withholding came flooding in even more for her than for those who had been victimised. There was something so fundamentally sound and well-adjusted about the unquestioning generosity of those who rallied around Smith 
and about the groundswell of financial and emotional support she received, even from people who appeared to be short on both. I knew how awful it was to learn that you can't save someone, and how extraordinary it was to watch people try. Smith's friends were stung, and badly, but would hopefully shake off their distrust and continue to take care of those closest to them. But Smith built a loving community and then obliterated it, almost as if she felt she had no other choice or nothing to lose. And that's symptomatic of something so utterly broken I can't envision ever being able to put it back together. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.